everyone. Welcome to another episode of NBRI New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retailing Studies, Mace Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Pinky Schenker, Director and uh, of Research and Coleman Chair Professor of Marketing. It's my honor to welcome our guest today, Dr. Su Chi Huang. Uh, Dr. Huang's research focuses on consumer motivation and different stages of goal pursuit. Uh, using experiments in the lab and the field. Her research has been published in the Journal of Consumer Research and the Journal of Marketing Research, among other journals. She's achieved prestigious awards, including the American Marketing Association's Consumer Behavior Special Interest Group's Rising Star Award, uh, and Marketing Science Institute MSI's Young Scholar, and finally, Poet and Quan's Best 40 Under 40 Professor. Uh, she has a PhD from the University of Texas at Austin, and she's also worked at JWT Advertising Agency as an account manager, uh, having managed uh, global brands such as Unilever and Estee Lauder. Welcome, Suchi, for taking valuable time out to join me in the conversation today. Are you ready to go back to uh, in-person teaching in fall? Oh, yes, I'm ready. I can't wait. And thank you for having me today. That's wonderful. Uh, now, Suchi, I uh, started introducing you and describing you in my own words uh, based on your achievements and your interests. Uh, how would you like to uh, characterize yourself? Maybe uh, if you can describe yourself in five words or less, that'll be fantastic. <laughs> That's such an interesting question. I think uh, if I try to define myself using a few words, it will be passion, creativity and curiosity. And the things I think drive me the most are uh, understanding the world and people. Excellent. So that's very well summarized in a nutshell. You didn't even take five words. I love the passion. <laughs> I love the curiosity uh, parts of it. So tell me what draw, drew you to research and consumer behavior. And I know that you in the past worked in the advertising world. So you know, if you could walk me through briefly your uh, research journey, as maybe starting with the PhD and the uh, different research topics you decided to focus on, that'd be a great start. Definitely. Uh, so like you mentioned, I used to work in industry. I work in advertising, which uh, is industry filled with creativity. And it's also with a purpose. It's to influence uh, users or customers. So as I work in the industry, I think a lot of times we get really curious about human behavior. Why would a campaign work really well or some point of sale display work really well? And why would other campaign kind of fell flat? And I think in the industry, we try to collect information based on our specific executions, but we weren't able to just ask any question um, to kind of satisfy our own curiosity. So, so <clears throat> after working in the industry for a few years, I decided uh, to leave that behind and pursue higher education and try to understand human behavior more. And that's when I quit my job and joined UT Austin. Uh, first got a master's degree in advertising and then continued to pursue a PhD in marketing, uh, specializing in consumer psychology. And through the PhD program, I was exposed to all kinds of research topic. And I think the topic on goal setting and motivation excite me the most uh, because it definitely really resonate not just with my industry background, trying to understand what motivate people to purchase luxurious brands, for instance, or things that can help them uh, feel better or appear better, but also is something that's um, 
kind of uh, excite me personally uh, because sometimes I find myself struggle with deadlines or I want to procrastinate, but I know I should work harder. So just being able to understand uh, how what motivates me will be helpful. So that's when I kind of got me started looking at those projects with my advisors. And then afterwards, um, now I'm a faculty at Stanford Business School. And here I do a lot of research, also looking at motivation, incentive design. How can we design incentives for our users, customers, or employees? And a related topic will be health behavior. How do we make, motivate people uh, to exercise or choose healthier choices? And I try to work with companies as well as organizations when I explore these topics. Uh, so for instance, I have projects with UNICEF trying to look at what motivate healthy children, uh, healthy choices, not just for adults, but also for young children. Excellent, that's an excellent summary. You mentioned that you came from advertising world, but then you started looking at goal pursuit in your dissertation research. And if I remember correctly, if I read your research correctly, which is very fascinating, you do look at the different stages in the goal pursuit. And uh, I remember reading your paper, which talked about as consumers are uh, initially starting out the goal pursuit, they're thinking about whether I'm going to get to my goal or not. And then as they progress through the different stages, they start, as they start coming towards the end, they start asking, when will I get there, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. so depending on these, their motivation levels uh, change and these have some profound implications for marketing. So walk me through some of your insights. What are some of the key insights and findings and what are what should marketers or what can marketers do about those? Definitely, and such a great summary of my work. Uh, definitely, I think a lot of my research comes down to understanding the dynamics uh, during a goal pursuit process. And what that means, usually when we set a goal, we kind of have an idea of how we want to achieve that. It could be within corporations, uh, for instance, sales teams usually have a goal, a goal for, the core, uh, for a goal that they want to achieve and you work toward it. Or for consumers, you may have a goal to become fitter for the summer, or you want to pursue um, a degree, for instance, academic degree. So these are goals and we work towards it. And I think the general belief uh, in the past was that it is a static process. So if I have some tools that can help me, I can just continue using that tools and I will achieve my goals. But based on my research, I realized a lot of the dynamic that happened during the goal pursuit process, they actually change based on where you are. So for people who are starting, uh, for instance, the beginning of the year, trying to achieve the sales goal, your mentality will be very different uh, when it comes to the end of the quarter, the end of the year, when you have already made a lot of progress and getting closer to the end. And the same thing for Weight Watchers, uh, your mentality and what motivates you could differ depending on whether you just joined the program and literally starting on this uh, pursuit of a better self or you are getting closer to the end, you have already lost a lot of weight, already much healthier, and you are trying to kind of close that final gap and achieve your goal. And what we found consistently through our research projects is that in the beginning, uh, people worry about attainability. And so to really provide feedback to make it seem possible is important. So in the beginning, it's really helping people feel like they are making progress, they can make progress, that will go a long way. And we found that as people reach the middle point, uh, the middle stage, a lot of times we lose that momentum um, because we have already been doing what we have been doing for a while. The end still seem quite far. 
And so usually at this stage, the middle stage, we found that having social support becomes very critical. If we have a group of people maybe doing similar things as us, we can talk to and that can support us and cheer us on. Uh, the value of having a peer group becomes inc incredible in the middle stage. As we get closer to the end goal, usually we are not worried about making progress anymore because we have a lot of progress. We already have social support there as well. So what really motivates us is to find that value, to complete that goal, to find that purpose. And that's the kind of, you're asking the big question at that point, what is what does achieving this goal really uh, do for me? What is health? What is success? And why is that so important? And be able to see the value in what I'm doing, it's gonna motivate me to finish the goal. So, so for what it suggests is that, yeah. Sorry, this is great. What it suggests is for marketers to really understand where consumers are in the different stages of their goal pursuit and maybe individualize or customize their communication efforts, particularly in an increasingly digital one-to-one -one world where we have the opportunity to really touch consumers at uh, different stages and be uh, more proactive about it, right? Is that what you would also That's suggest? Funny. Yeah. Yeah. You are so, right on, definitely. Like with technology, yeah, now we have more information about where our customers are. So for instance, we would know our customers are, they are just starting to do business with us. It's the first time that they logged onto our website or they have been doing business with us for a while. And that would suggest that we should give them different kind of feedback, either to make them feel like they're making progress, to connect them with other users or to help them see value in the product. And the same That's thing for employees like managing yeah. sales teams, for instance, we may use smaller goals, uh, mini micro goals to help them make progress in the beginning, but we may highlight the bigger bonus, the big dream at the end. So it really, it suggests that dynamic feedback is really critical in sustaining motivation. Excellent. Now, I assume that many of these uh, situations like, uh, you know, weight control, uh, you know, achieving a college uh, education or sales quota, these are, uh, have some, uh, more certainty about what the end goal is and how to proceed to that toward the goal. But what about cases where there's ambiguity involved? So in other words, you have some goal in mind, but you know you don't know exactly how the goal is going to be reached or what when you reach it, what stage you will be at that point in time and how to go about it. And let me take a case in point, like uh, which could even flip this uh, uh, these uh, results or these findings that you may have, like in pandemic period. The, uh, the start of the pandemic, people were really uncertain about how to get out of this pandemic, right? So in other words, uh, they said, when will this pandemic end? So the, at the beginning, people were asking about, you know, when will the pandemic end? Not rather, will the pandemic ever end? But then slowly over a period of time, you know, we get uh, uh, control over it, maybe vaccinations, We practice uh, social distancing and masking. Then you start uh, looking at all the outcomes and then you start worrying about, uh, will I ever get out of this pandemic, right? So I'm trying to uh, juxtapose the scenario. Obviously this is not the scenario you analyzed, but uh, in situations where there's ambiguity, right? Uh, how would you take your framework or your research in there and what would be some of the implications? And I and understand you know, there may not be any findings as yet in some of the areas, but what would your uh, take on this uh, situations where there's ambiguity? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think a few things 
comes to mind. First, definitely, there are a lot of situations where the angle is not clear, or just as we think we are making progress, there's a regress, which uh, the situation of pandemic sounds a lot like this. And I think right. what our research discovered is that the stage-based model we are talking about here is not fixed. So it really depends on the context and the situation. And what we're really saying is that there is a layer of motivation and the kind of a layer of questions people will be wondering. The first most fundamental layer is, am I even making progress? Because if it's not possible, I should just give up and disengage. But once I make sure of that, then I want to know I'm not alone in this. And eventually, the, the last question I will be asking is the value of this, the purpose. And so kind of a, through the lens of pandemic, for instance, maybe at some point we do feel like there is certainty we can resolve this. Then we start to ask other kind of layers of questions. But whenever there is a shock, for instance, the new variant that's coming up, then we might be questioning about the certainty again. It goes back into that fundamental level. We are again unsure if we are even making progress. And so it could be actually a dynamic process switching between these different concerns and different stages. It's not really a fixed uh, sequence. And therefore, for influencers, it becomes important to figure out what is the main question or main concern that our customers or users may have right now and to make sure we tailor that message or the feedback or the information to address that concern. Another so thing that comes to, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Another thing that comes to your mind, go ahead. And Another thing that comes to mind when you say, uh, when you mention kind of non-specific goals, uh, indeed in life, a lot of the goals we pursue could be very abstract, such as health right. or um, intellectual pursuit. Usually they never ends. You can keep on reading books and grow. Right. And we do have a recent research that look at this kind of goals and how, what can I do to sustain people's motivation? Because there's no a clear, it's not a clear end or a clear beginning. And what we found is that a lot of times it's very helpful to think about these goal pursuits then more as a journey and not as a destination. Uh, when it is a destination, we tend to focus a lot on the endpoint and we may even relax after we feel like we reached some endpoint. Whereas a journey mindset help us see kind of how we make progress from the past to the present and how important it is to continue doing what we are doing to move into the future. And pandemic, again, seems a lot like a journey while we are making progress. It really never ends. And it's important for us to keep on conducting these healthy behaviors, protecting ourselves, protecting others. To that will help us go into the future. So instead of feeling like we just reach a destination and everybody can relax, it might be important to think about it as a continued journey. That's a very important point you make, Suchi. Um, what you're saying, it's a very dynamic process uh, and that is very, very well taken. Um, but that brings to the issue, you know, the standard, uh, uh, standard motivation uh, method people say is the uh, pursuit people want you to focus on is be the best you can be, right? So everybody's uh, motivated to pursue things so that they can be their best self, right? And oftentimes I've heard people come back and say, I understood what you say, but I don't know what's the best I can be, right? Uh, I really don't have an idea, right? So uh, help me with that, right? And that is where lots of this ambiguity comes. And your message is uh, very nice. It's saying that focus on the journey and if you're making progress from the past to the current, that's a good sign, even though you may not know what the future clearly is, right? Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, the fact that the future is uncertain is a very important uh, aspect that uh, we need to really factor that into consumer uh, and organizational decision-making is that 
Now, the future is fraught with uncertainty. And so uncertainty is uh, uh, when you are pursuing a goal, you might, your goal posts might change, your goals might change. And you have to reevaluate every now and then, I guess. That's uh, one way for you to really reconnect with your motivation, right? Otherwise, as you said, some people really give up, some people lose sight of what they want to do and so on. But on that note, you also have a lot of work on pro-social uh, behavior, right? Which is really getting, motivating the consumer to give for others, right? So uh, tell, walk us uh, through some of your research on this and how's the motivation to be pro-social uh, encouraged, nurtured, and what kind of results do you find in your research? Yes, definitely. Pro-sociality is another interesting area for motivation research, because here we are now motivating ourselves to achieve individual goals, but it's more to achieve collective goals and collective well-being. We have a few findings here. One is that in order to motivate people to potentially donate or give their time, such as volunteering, it's important for people to feel a sense of responsibility for others, for the society. So for instance, if we They'll compare you to different peer groups and make you feel subjectively a little bit older. Uh, so you feel in some way you feel like you are the older member of the society and you feel more responsible for others compared to if I just let you feel younger in the society, then you may anticipate that others should be taking care of you. So we find that prosociality is really heavily driven by a sense of responsibility. And it really comes down to how the organizations or government agencies can leverage our communication to make people feel like they all play a role in this final outcome and we are all responsible. Another aspect of an ongoing project on prosociality has something to do with new technology. Um, right. So these days we know that we have a lot of machines or robots and devices that can help us do a lot of things. So for instance, student, during the pandemic, of course we have uh, human teams who are cleaning the hospitals, but there are a lot of automatic devices that's cleaning the hospitals, delivering right. the meals and doing a lot of things such as testing uh, for COVID. And these are outsourced to machines and robots. And we are curious to see whether that affects how consumers and donors feel. And our preliminary findings suggest that when we highlight that there are robots or machines, these automatic devices, they are also participating and helping uh, to helping us overcome uh, the pandemic or achieve some kind of a pro-social goals. People tend to actually feel that since now machines are taking care of it, they don't have to contribute as much. So people's pro-sociality actually reduce. They volunteer less and they actually give less. Uh, but there is a solution we are exploring right now is to highlight that it is actually a team of both humans and these automatic devices. So you can think of the team of humans and robots working together uh, to solve these big problems and issues. And that seems to be a message that can sustain people's uh, willingness to participate and not to feel that since automatic devices are taking care of the problem, we can all just uh, go back home and relax. That's fascinating because let's uh, peel these uh, findings one by one. You mentioned that uh, one of your findings is that when you uh, juxtapose an individual in a, peer, in a group where that individual is a senior member or has a greater responsibility, then there is more tendency to uh, give. And so the pro-social behavior tendency improves, right? Um, and you can almost equate that to uh, a sense of uh, giving back or sense of you sharing your experience or knowledge, right? And um, mm -hmm. in today's world, if you look at the um, 
the climate uh, you know change issue. If you, if you look at different generations, you know how they are going about it. You know the millennials and the Gen Zs. They very feel very strongly about uh, the uh, uh, planet for the future, and so they are very concerned about it and so on. But if you look at a senior member, a senior generation, sometimes they also view them as uh, the senior people to be not so responsible, right? So how, how would you reconcile to that, uh, that issue going forward? And also the fact that uh, we also know that uh, some findings, some research have shown that people tend to give more when there's peer pressure. So they know that the peers have also donated and contributed. They don't want to look bad. That is not, uh, you know, when they're perceived senior, but then are perceived equal. So they also tend to uh, come out with more pro-social behavior due to peer pressure or perception of how they want to look among the peers. So how do you reconcile these uh, two sets of uh, findings or insights? Definitely, that's a great question. And at the end of the day, pro-sociality is driven by so many different psychologies and mechanisms. It's not just one. And what we found from our research is that what's really interesting here is that subjective feeling of age could be very different from actual age, objective age. So a person can be old but not feel old and vice versa. And what we are finding is that when the person is objectively old, so we're really talking about senior group of people, a lot of times they might be worried about different things. For instance, they worry that they don't have a lot of time left. And when people don't have a lot of mm -hmm. time left, then they want to prioritize the people they care about the most. So we see people giving more resources or giving more time to close others, close friends and close family members instead of donating elsewhere. And that's the kind of... Maybe that's uh, more consistent with what you were saying earlier is that when people are objectively old and we focus them on that fact, they actually could become less giving because they wanna give what they have left to the people who really they really care about. And what we're finding is that holding the actual age constant, if I can somehow make you feel subjectively older than your peers, you might will feel slightly more responsible that you are supposed to take care of others. And that could motivate giving to strangers, the people outside of your network. And it's also very interesting to think that there are younger generations who tend to feel that sense of responsibility. And that is a very unique and important area of research for us to explore. And it's important not to label them all as the same, but within that age group, there are people who maybe naturally feel a stronger sense of responsibility and therefore they are more pro-social. And that's definitely that's good a to know. very so exciting you, possibility. Yeah, you're saying rather than just the age alone, it is really the perception of being senior yeah. in the group are being made to feel senior or responsible, that really matters. And you, yeah, as you said, yeah. it can even happen in younger uh, aged uh, people, provided there's a tendency and there is a, uh, um, there's some kind of motivation for them to feel that way. But uh, another interesting angle on this is that you, you really brought the machine uh, and a human uh, perception. And one of the fascinating findings uh, from your research is that when people are told that, you know, now machines can perform many of these functions and, you know, your role is not as, uh, uh, you know, as a worker bee is not as important, um, then people tend to relax and not to think about giving as much. But I'm, I'm just wondering, would a role clarity help here? Um, I'm thinking if people are told that the robots and the machines, they can take care of all the mundane tasks or the repetitive tasks or the artist tasks. Uh, but now you have more free time to think and give on 
other things you can give monetarily and non-monetarily in terms of you know, coaching, advising, and other things, wouldn't that also spur some pro-social tendencies? So uh, what I'm asking you is the role of, uh, the role of really clarifying the role uh, of the mm -hmm. giver here, would that make a pro-social uh, behavior go up? I think that's a very plausible and interesting possibility. Uh, so far, we haven't tested that, but we do know that if we kind of talk a little bit more carefully about what robots and machines do and what humans on the team do and highlight how they work together or work side by side, it does help to boost motivation. So it definitely, I think if we can sort out the task and make it clearer that robots are not substituting all the human contribution, they're just doing part of it. And there's very important part of human effort that's also helping to conquer these challenges and, and increasing society's welfare, that I believe that that should be motivating to the donors and to the customers as well. That's very interesting because um, in our future, we are gonna be seeing more of these machines and more of these robots. And so uh, have you seen any differences, generational differences between let's say Gen Z and, um, and millennials on the one side and is grouping them, but they may be different. Uh, versus baby boomers, uh, what their view of pro-sociality is um, when you juxtapose uh, humans and uh, machines together. Uh, are there any differences in views? Uh, I'm almost uh, tempted to, to start with the hypothesis that the Gen Zs and the millennials will be more used to having AIs and uh, machines and robots around them. So they almost take it as a given and then they may start thinking about how can they play a part in being more pro-social, whereas a uh, you know baby boomer or beyond may be thinking more about, gee, you know, what does it mean in terms of my time, my responsibility, and my role? Again, that's a layman like me's hypothesis. But what are your thoughts on this? Uh, definitely. I think there's a definite need to do a lot of research in this area. We know preliminarily there is definitely a generation-based effect. There is also cultural-based uh, effect. So for instance, there are generations, potentially younger generations, that tend to think of machines or robots that they, are, they have Kind of they, they have sophisticated ability to make decisions, almost just like human. And so in right. some way, we will perceive them as more autonomous and have their own kind of will. They can operate on their own and get things done. And so they tend to see robot human teams almost just like human-human teams. And there are also cultural differences as well. There are societies where the robots are already widely used and it's embedded in the society. So in those societies, other groups of researchers have also found that people tend to believe that robots can have their own will and autonomy. And that would definitely change. So we move to a different culture that don't believe in that or different generations that see robots literally just as machines and human as some completely different entity that could lead to very different effects. And so I definitely agree with you. And I think based on our research finding, if I start to see machines and robots almost like humans, then I will be motivated to contribute as well because the effect will be similar to having a human only team. Uh, but if I see robots as substituting for humans, that's where the relaxation happens and we feel like we can just outsource everything. Excellent, that you brought the cultural differences angle very well. I'm also thinking, what is the role of not just robots and machines, but the role of AI uh, more generally in terms of people's decision-making, goal pursuit, uh, including pro-social tendencies? 
Uh, what if you, if you have robots now being thought of as uh, helping to assist in decision-making or make, um, making routinized uh, tasks easy for you? Uh, but what if you could use robots as a moral compass, for example? For example, you, robots could remind you saying that, hey, you know, you're using too much plastic today, you know, uh, in your consumption, right? And the plastic is not good for the environment. Uh, so could you do something or could you engage in some donation behavior? Could you, you know, reduce your intake of this, right? Or, you know, your example of, you know, achieving healthy uh, outcomes and weight loss and so on, it could remind you saying that, hey, you, you're not moving towards the right path. How about also helping out this foundation, you know, uh, foundation of diabetes or making contribution there so that you can bring that down. Do you see a role for robots or AI in that perspective? I love where you're going with the ideas. So we actually, we didn't test for sociality, but we have a forthcoming paper that look at health behavior. So like you say, kind of individual goal pursuit and what happens if we compare ourselves to robots or having robots or machines as that rational voice. And so what we found in that project is that whenever a comparison is drawn between human and robot, or I'm exposed to some robots making very rational decisions, or I'm using teleconferencing devices that kind of connect a human head to a robotic body. So these kinds of situations does prompt this comparison between human being more heart-based agencies. We make more irrational, emotional decisions right. versus robots and machines who seem to be always making the right or rational decision. And we found that uh, consumers actually respond to them differently. So for the consumers who are very good at regulating their diets, so they are already kind of making food choices like robots, these kind of reminders or just expose them to technology-mediated environments, reminding them of the rational decision-making is good because they are reminded that, okay, I can totally make decisions just like robots would choose the healthy options so they become healthier. But there is also a big group of customers, consumers who tend to think that they are not very good at uh, regulating their diet. They tend to go with impulsive choices or emotional choices. And for these consumers, uh, the reminder of robots and machines could backfire because we basically we are reminding them of a standard that's impossible for these group of consumers to achieve. So the more they think about how robots always choose the right thing and they would have pick the rational choice, it just remind them again that they can't do it themselves. And that backfired because again, we are making it seem impossible and people end up actually choosing worse options uh, for their meal or for their snack. So that's something definitely, I think more research needs to be done in this area to understand how the influence can go beyond healthy choices. But I think it does shed light on the fact that now as humans living within technology, we tend to compare ourselves to a more mechanistic decision-making process. And that could sometimes be a good reminder, but it could also sometimes backfire and make us be more human and make more uh, emotional or irrational choices. Excellent. Now, let me switch gears a little bit. You've learned so much about your wonderful research. Um, let me try and understand who is Suchi Huang as a person and what else do you do when you're not doing research, Suchi? <laughs> 
Yes, I uh, several things I love. I love yoga. So I've been uh, doing yoga since when I was at UT going through my uh, graduate education. And now it become a big passion of mine. So I love yoga. I also love uh, scuba diving. So I dive a lot. And uh, because of that, I also recently picked up underwater photography. Uh, so wow. I'm still not good at it, but it's really fun to do kind of capturing the beautiful world uh, that is hidden from most of us. And also it's something that's relatively easy to do during the time of COVID. So I've been enjoying these activities. Excellent. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you your recommendation for uh, let's say uh, the next 15 years, maybe 10 years, put your crystal ball and say, what, are, what would be the most important uh, research issues for marketers uh, and business managers going forward? And what are some of the things that we should be focusing on? Uh, I think two, two things comes to mind. Uh, first, earlier we talked about technology. I think we start to see how technology, all kinds of new technology is changing how we live. And I think there's definitely a lot of research that needs to be done to understand how we interact with te technology, how we compare ourselves to technology, and how we can build a team between human and technology to really help organizations and companies be effective, but also increase the well-being of our society. So really understanding the role of technology in this new era will be important. And relatedly, I think the second question would be how we keep the human element in this new era of new technology. And I think a lot of business leaders are now thinking about this question as I integrate more ro robot or machines or automatic devices into my organization. Uh, as I rely on big data to make decisions, where are the human elements in the organizations? How do we keep that, cultivate that, and protect that? I think that will be a question that all the business schools and all the leaders in the world will be asking. Excellent. I, talking about the second question, uh, um, what are the human elements? Now, uh, I would even go far to say what are the human elements, right? So because you know the human uh, machine interfaces are getting blurred and some of the roles are being done by the uh, machines and in future we could be also augmented by um, artificial intelligence so the human capability uh, both uh, cognitively and emotionally could also undergo a transformation right so what is a human yeah. element uh, 15 years from now it is also up for grabs right um, totally in, in some sense so <laughs> so we are in that explore uh, exploration phase and see since you love curiosity it looks like uh, you will have a wealth of research issues ahead of you for the next 10 15 years now we come to the last segment which is really you know uh, this program is uh, watched and listened to by a number of different stakeholders you know we've got students former students uh, executives employers public policy officials uh, and a whole range of people but what would your message be for some or more of them going forward? Uh, what should they be doing differently in the future? Uh, admittedly, we are still facing an uncertainty in the post-pandemic era. And also, uh, we also know the role of machines and artificial intelligence pushing boundaries further. What should these different stakeholders be thinking and doing differently? Uh, that's a big question. <laughs> I think from all of my research and also the newer research on technology, what I have learned personally from all of them is uh, 
I think it's one of the famous quote that the only constant in life is change. And right. so from when it comes to dynamic feedback in the global pursuit process or the impact of new technology or even virtual teams, all we are talking about is change. And if we learn anything from last year, it's that the only thing that's constant is changing. And I think change is a part of business and is a natural part of life and world. And I think for all of us, it is an a humbling experience to realize how important it is to understand change and to be able to be open-minded about it and to continue to adapt. And so we cannot really plan for everything, but I think it's important to think about how we can lead the next change, be a part of it, contribute to it, and kind of direct where it goes. And so I think learning how to live with it and how to uh, direct the next phase of change to the positive, I think that will be uh, important for all of us. Excellent. That's a great message. It almost sounds Darwinian. Adapting yourself to the constant changes around you and embracing uh, is the way to go. And on that note, I want to thank you so much, Su Chi Wang, for sharing your insights. Uh, your insights have been very, very valuable and uh, your research is fascinating. Uh, I wish you uh, continued uh, good luck in your research as you move forward. And thank you again for uh, conversing with me today.